baby Noman Having time to snack around in comfort all the year So when we get a little time before our boat gets going We head on down to the library and this is what we hear Come, Come on in, and look all around, around. There's, there's plenty for to see Make your own self right at home, I love the library Homegrown Conversations, a collaboration between KFSK and the Petersburg Public Library. I'm Kari Peterson. Today we have excerpts from a program we did last year with botanist Joni Johnson talking about blueberries. Joni is a botanist with the U.S. Forest Service, and prior to that, she was a science teacher at Petersburg High School. So welcome, Joni. Hey, thanks. This will be fun. Yeah. So um, let's start with um, the different types of blueberries that grow in Southeast Alaska. Do you want to talk yeah, about that? I do have to back up a little bit when you talk about me as an expert in blueberries. I was thinking about all of us who love to go pick blueberries and I think we're all blueberry experts but it's kind of amazing when you look at a blueberry it's exciting because you see this plant and it's almost like an iceberg because what you see above ground is maybe a fourth of the entire plant so I think it was like 75 percent of that plant is below ground and we don't even see it um and that could be 
you know, when we talk about blueberries, you know, botanically, we talk about families of blueberries. It would be Ericaceae, but, um, you know, we have bog blueberries and dwarf blueberries, oval leaf blueberries, Alaska blueberries. But then in that same family of blueberries, we have crowberry and we have lingonberry and we have bog cranberry. Um, so it's kind of cool. You know, we focus, when we think of blueberries, we think of the berries that are blue. But if you think of them as a plant scientist, it's, you know, there are other characteristics that make that plant a blueberry and it includes you know, oh, and the huckleberries. I forgot about the red huckleberries. It includes those in the cranberries also. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that, that the cranberries were in the same. Yeah, it's all the family. It's Ericaceae or it's, you know, the blueberry family. But there are characteristics about those plants, you know, from the number of seeds um, and the, sh the shapes of the, the flower parts that put them in the same family. Okay. So... Um, I guess I'm curious, you know how the, the salmon berries, like they will spread, um, or the raspberries, how they, they kind of trail and then, and then new plants come up. Do blueberries grow like that or do they just grow the single plant and then you have to plant a new one if you want? Um... Well, so it's a little bit different, but but yes, like bog blueberry, um, I mean, so it can be a branch essentially that kind of becomes um, this below ground runner, you know, and then it'll sprout up again. Um, but it, a part of that depends on where you see the plants or where the plants are growing. So in forested areas, not so much so. Um, where it'd be more of like a like the Alaska blueberry or the oval leaf blueberry will come up singly, but they don't have the rhizomes like the raspberries do. Like cloudberry uh, is in the raspberry family. Like, did she mention raspberries too? So, um, yeah, okay. The, but the bogberry will will have runners. But that's my understanding. And the um and like the dwarf blueberry, which also grows in that more of an open sun environment, and the um. Uh, in the bogs and on the bog edges or more up in the subalpine areas or higher elevation areas. It's similar where it's not like a, yeah, it's kind of that branch. So it's not a true rhizome, but there's this branch that goes off underneath the moss and then new shoots will come up. Okay. So, um, so the bog berries and the dwarf berries, those are the ones that grow in, in the muskeg mm -hmm. itself. And then at the higher, like when, I think of up by um, Raven's Roost, up around there, like when we go camping up there. Those are the ones that you find really low to the ground. Yeah, and those, and I guess, you know, low to the ground here. Um, and as you move north, like the bog blueberry becomes the most common blueberry in the interior of Alaska, you know, that you'll find in the tundra. Okay. And I know um, you sent me some <clears throat> some resources, and 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 this um, this radio show will be available as a podcast at the library, and we will have those resources on there. But there was some really fascinating research when I was reading through there um, of those resources you sent me, and one of them was there was a quote from a native person 
um, about the how the color of the the land will actually turn blue in a good year, and it was really beautiful. Well, and I think that's it. It's true, and for those who have either gone to school in Fairbanks or have lived in the interior, it's that's very true. I mean, and it's kind of neat because you have the red leaves, but there are so many bog blueberries that it it does hillsides will have that blue cast to them that's gorgeous and easy blueberry picking too yeah okay so um can you tell me where where can we find the oval leaf blueberry where is that tradition oval leaf blueberry and the alaska blueberry are both more forest grown um so for you know the edges of the forester um that they prefer shady environments and they get taller. And those, um, those two in particular are important forage for um, deer and moose, like winter forage for the woody material, or you know, when they're leafy, then it's, you know, it's an important forage species for them as well. Okay. Now, I, I have to just, I wonder about this. My grandmother told me, um, my grandmother, an avid berry picker in her day, um, she told me that the natives used to break off the branches as as and and sit and pick them off the branches, but as a way of pruning the branches so that they would grow back. Is there any science behind that, or I think so? And I think if you, I mean don't know a whole lot about this but if you think about the folks who farm blueberries you know they are pruning the blueberries to create more branches um and and it also stimulates their production you know growth i think the other thing that um it's kind of interesting along those lines is that the buds that will produce the berries next are are grown this year for next year's growth oh so i didn't the, realize that yeah so the buds that you see on the blueberries in the spring are for next year not this year well oh sorry so in the fall let's say um well let me back up and i'm trying to figure out how to explain this so those buds that you see in the spring were actually produced in the fall of the previous year from the summer's growth the previous year oh okay that makes sense is it that little kind of red thing Mm -hmm. when it's all okay yeah and so that, that does bring up a question, though, that I don't know the answer to. Like, if you were to prune those blueberries, like, what is the right time to prune them? You know, if, if those buds are being produced the previous year, then when do you want to make sure you prune to stimulate growth? Um, oh. And I don't know the answer to that question. I'd have to go and read about it. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's take a short break. We're going to... Um If you are just joining us, this is Homegrown Conversations, a collaboration between KFSK and the Petersburg Public Library. I'm Kari Peterson, and today I've taken excerpts from a old recording that I had from last year with Joni Johnson, who is a local botanist with the Forest Service, and she is talking about blueberries. So I have to come back to that where you said the um, 
it's only a quarter of the plant above ground and the rest of it, 75% of it is underground. Um, so does this have to do with the, the fungus? Um, believe it or not, the fungus is even above and beyond that. So I, it's one of the things that I really love about my work or and just trying to figure out um, what makes a plant healthy and the ecology of the plant, like what does it depend on? And, you know, so you have blueberries that produce berries as an adaptation, right? And they have a nice tasty berry that animals want to eat so that it spreads the seeds out. Well, additionally, you know, underground, their root system is very extensive. And, you know, blueberries are adapted to acidic soils, and that means that there's not a lot of food. You know, acidic soils aren't known for having a lot of the essential nutrients like the phosphorus that plants need. So that becomes a limiting nutrient and it'll prevent you from growing if you can't get enough. So it sends out roots that, you know, go far and wide in search of phosphorus and these other essential nutrients that you need. But it's pretty incredible if you include then this mutualistic relationship that they have with fungus. Um, and I'll talk about that more here in a moment, that it's probably like, you know, 95% of the plant or more is below ground. And, oh, wow. you, and so really fungus here in Southeast Alaska um, is incredibly important for trees, for shrubs, for plants, you know, for herbaceous plants, just because most environments here are pretty nutrient poor. And so they have this lovely relationship with the fungus. You know, the fungus gets fed sugar or those photosynthates from the plant, from the blueberries, for example. But then in return, this fungus is sending out um, all these fibers and it's called mycelium. And so these mycelium, you know, go throughout the soil and do a fantastic job of tapping into um, the reserves that are in the soil to take them up or, you know, fungus get their food by secreting chemicals and then those chemicals break down those compounds and it can take them up. That's why they're great decomposers, right? So this fungus is, you know, performing that role as well. It's decomposing organic matter in the soil, which then provides, you know, they take it up and help feed the, the blueberry plants. And this um, isn't from that, um, this is more of the information that you had sent that we'll put on with the podcast. Um, so if you want to look into this further, you can, but I was, I was really, um, I know you had talked a little bit about it when we had first talked, but um, looking at that research and just looking, um, I didn't read all of it, but looking at just even the picture of the research that had been done and showing the different plants and the plants that had the fungus as opposed to the root balls that didn't and how much bigger they were. Yeah. So, so this fungus is important for the actual plant and the production, I would imagine what I gathered from that, the production of the blueberries. No, it's very true. And I mean, I, and those who produce blueberries agriculturally know that. And so they make sure, you know, there's a lot of research that's gone into which type a fungus is important to these blueberries or the specific species or variants of the blueberries to make sure that the soil, that they actually put that type of fungus in the soil with the blueberries that they're cultivating. Um, and it's, it's amazing. I mean, 
just the different kinds, because they're, they're essentially two different categories of these mycorrhizal fungus, so the below-ground fungus. You know, there's one variety or one group that they'll essentially create a sheath around the roots. You know, and so think of roots not just as thick, but they get really fine, and, you know, they, they're like hairs traveling through. And so, you know, they're ecto or outside ectomycorrhizal fungus. It'll basically sheath the roots and helps protect it. Um, and then also, you know, feeds it. And then there's another type, which actually um, invades the cells, the root cells of the plant, and it's called endo for going in. Um, and so it's less of a protective sheath around the root, but it's similarly, it's another way of being able, it doesn't harm the roots and it you know, takes, similarly takes up food. There's so much, so, so much that we don't know and we're learning every day about this below ground piece and how important it it is to our ecosystem. Wow. And our blueberries that we love to eat. Yes. <laughs> if you were just joining us, this is Homegrown Conversations, a collaboration between KFSK and the Petersburg Public Library. I'm Kari Peterson, and this is an older recording done with Joni Johnson last year. Joni is a botanist with the U.S. Forest Service and she is talking all about blueberries. So before I ask my last question, mm-hmm. is there, well, I guess I have one before that. So is, um, what can we do as blueberry pickers to help um, maintain the health of the berries in our community or where we pick, you know. Right. Oh, goodness. Ha. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I know. Well, it's kind of, it's an interesting one because we talk about, you know, the whole idea of like breaking branches, you know, so pruning, but knowing when to do that if you want to keep going back to that same area to pick. But I think, um, you know part of it perhaps comes back to some of that leave no trace you know type idea of minimizing your your footprint and taking out whatever um, garbage you have but uh, but also yeah it's just an interesting one because they do need a little bit of disturbance you know if you think about um um forest edges are typically where you find the most production of blueberries or here I think on Metcalf Island, a lot of the clear cuts are older now. And so it's kind of shaded out blueberry plants, but you know, that's an area on a certain age clear cut when you go back and the blueberries are just ripe and you can go and pick gallons of blueberries there. So they, you know, they do benefit from some disturbance. Um, You know, if it's the oval leaf or the Alaska blueberry. So it's kind of interesting that question because there's some disturbance that's good, but then there's also, of course, the other disturbance where, you know, you want to protect that area that you love to go pick in. Yeah. And also in that, um, those resources that you sent, I remember looking in there and the numbers per acre of berry in different areas, such as clear cuts and as opposed to agricultural, as opposed to um, like a bog. I was really surprised by those numbers. I can't come up with them off the top of my head, but the numbers in the clear cut was like, wow, off the charts. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And, you know, and then the other piece, too, really is, I mean, how incredibly important pollinators are to blueberries and bumblebees specifically. You know, it's, um, you know, if you think about it, blueberries are one of the first plants to flower in the spring. I mean, skunk cabbage, yes, but flies go to skunk cabbage. But blueberries, you know, their blossoms are one of the first ones out there. And, um and it's the bumblebees that are the significant pollinator for these vaccinium for the blueberries. And, and it's really interesting to think about bumblebees. They're pretty much ground dwellers. And I mean, it's a whole other topic of, you know, essentially you have your queen bee that survives and overwinters and she comes out in May and broods her first group of workers. And, you know, and the workers start, you know, feeding off these blueberries blossoms, you know, and so that's buzz pollination. So you should stop if you see blueberries, with bumblebees there to just listen because you can hear that then it's the vibration that triggers the anthers to release the pollen so that the blueberries can take up that pollen and you know and use it for food um and then and blueberries can't self-pollinate so sure they have male and female organs on the same flower and on the same plant but the plant can't pollinate itself for the most part and so that pollen has to get transferred to a different plant altogether you know, to, and, you know, another adaptation to maintain genetic diversity, but it's those pollinators. And so it's just one single queen bee that survives the winter and then starts brooding her workers. And then in the fall, that's when the male drones are brooded and, you know, are used um, to fertilize the, the fertile queens. And, and anyways, it's just fascinating to me that here's this other group of organisms that they depend on blueberries and lots of other plants, but it goes down to just like one single queen over winters and then boom, you know, she makes, makes her own brood and her own colony and off they go again. So um, I had this question come in. Somebody was like, well, you have to ask Joni about worms because it's been a very wet year. Any suggestions about worms or where to pick or how to pick to avoid the? <laughs> you got to beat them. You got to get there first. Isn't that the challenge? And I mean, if, yeah, if anyone has to answer that question, call Oren and let us all know. <laughs> yes, I I do feel it's like, you know, when you go out and look for bullies, it's this competition to get to the bully before the worms do or the squirrels do. But, you know, and it's just my general observation with the blueberries, too, is that the longer they're there, the more likely it is that the worms are going to be in there and you're soaking them to get the worms out before you make muffins or jam or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. I figured you just chew a lot. Make sure you chew a blueberry really good. Protein, added protein. But you know, I mean, and that's another thing that I think is really interesting ecologically with blueberries. I mean, you referred to, you know, the light regime and so level disturbance, but that also, I mean, these are superfoods and the Alaska blueberry has the highest antioxidant value of all the different blueberries in North America that have been tested. So, right, and super healthy, they're all high in vitamin C, but they're not all created equal. Like if it's forest grown, let's say Alaska and oval leaf blueberries, um, they have a higher protein content and a higher, and if they're in, in potassium, I think they're in the forest. But if it's in the clear cut, it has more fiber and less protein. 
and and also it's really interesting you know we talk about salmon in the trees well it's not just salmon in the trees i mean it's salmon in the blueberry bushes because um you know related to deer forage you know they've looked at the nutritional value of leaves and the leaves and blueberry bushes that grow in salmon watersheds you know where the salmon carcasses are fertilizer have a much higher nitrogen content which means more protein um, and that also translate into the blueberries, which also have a greater amount of protein. So it's, anyways, it's just, it's, it's a huge picture and it's so fun to think about all the different pieces. And of course, then all these other pieces we don't know, but I just love that idea as well that, I mean, salmon are such an important keystone species for us. Yeah. I never thought of that, the amount of protein in a blueberry aside from the worm. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm glad you mentioned that because it made me think of the salmon piece. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit before we go mm -hmm. about um, huckleberries? Are they different than blueberries? Oh, my gosh, that question. Um, this is a hard one. So, yes, but it comes down to common names for huckleberries. And then because if you think about it, I think, Bilberry is another one that's in there, right? Blueberry, bilberry, and huckleberry. And um, I think all bilberry are also vaccinium. Huckleberry, it could be a vaccinium or it could be a different group. And I forget right now what the genus is. But huckleberry, like true huckleberry, they have a hard seed, I guess. So, you know, instead of it mushing in your mouth, like you think of um, eating a bog blueberry, you don't really notice the seeds. I guess in a huckleberry, there's a little crunch. Um, and then the other thing, I hope I'm remembering this right. Like if you cut open a huckleberry, it'll be dark flesh inside. Whereas a, the blueberry, you know, you cut it open and it's kind of a green or oh, yeah. more opaque. Um, and I think that's where, is it the Alaska blueberry that you know, some folks will say it's the false huckleberry because you can cut it and it's, I mean, it stains your fingers dark blue. Yeah. Lips and, but yes. that's kind of my understanding. And I think there's more too, like where you find it, like the range. Um, but I can't recall that off the top of my head. Well, thank you for joining us, Joni. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me too. It's great. That was wonderful. I, there's so much science involved. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Makes the world go round. Yeah. Um, Thank you for joining us. This has been Homegrown Conversations, a collaboration between KFSK and the Petersburg Public Library. And just a reminder that it is the final week of the Summer Stream Reading Program. And it's also the final week of the Bookworms program. So get all of your activities and logging done by Monday, July 12th, to be entered in the grand prize drawings. The grand prize for Summer Stream is $250, and we will be drawing two of those. And the grand prize for the Bookworms program is one caregiver massage, to Nancy Zayek. Next Wednesday, July 14th,
we're going to have a party at the library for all the summer stream participants and we'll be serving root beer floats and at that time we'll announce all the winners and you can pick up your prizes at that time. So again that party is Wednesday July 14th at 2 o'clock at the public library and at that time we will announce all of the winners for the summer stream program and we've had lots of readers this year and they've all been working really hard and I have lots of um, artwork that has been turned in and it will be on display at the public library also. So stop by the library and see all of the children's hard work that will be on display for all the activities they participated in this summer. <laughs>